Well, good morning, everyone. So this is a holiday that we celebrate today. It's probably not the one that you think. No, no. Uh, this is the last Sunday of the month of October, and that Sunday we celebrate something called what? Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday, yeah. So it's the last Sunday, and it goes back to a time in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, Germany. And these, he was part of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and he wanted to speak against some of the doctrines that were there. And as he nailed those 95 theses, some of his students went and took that document and then spread it out to a number of different people. And about four years later, Martin Luther was held on trial, and he was declared a heretic, and he was declared one that was an outlaw. And they were actually going to try to kill him. And by God's grace, God took him from that place and brought him to a place where he was able to write the New Testament in the German language, and then he wrote prolifically, and a lot of the books that we have today are because of that time that God spared him. And so I want you to think about this day, and I want you to think about three words as we begin our service. The first word is conviction. Martin Luther had strong convictions. A person I mentioned in my sermon two weeks ago, William Tyndale, who died by strangulation and then was burned at the stake to give us the Bible in the English language. These are people that were strongly convicted about what they believed and why they believed it. You and I need to do that as well. Martin Luther said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every truth about God, except that which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. For where the battle rages... There the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the field besides is mere flight and disgrace, if he flinches at that point. And what Luther was saying was this, that you and I stand in times when the culture and the devil is attacking the belief of Christ. And the question you and I have to make is this, are we going to be convicted and are we going to be courageous in those times? Because we have those times today. They were willing to die for their convictions. They were willing to die courageously. Are you and I willing to do that? The third word I want you to think about this morning, convictions, courageous, and the third word is gratitude. As we come into the month of November, it is Thanksgiving in three weeks, right? And Thanksgiving, we get an opportunity to have a lot of great food. My wife can cook well. Um, we watch some football games as well, but the one thing I want you to think about in Thanksgiving is this, thankfulness. We're living in a time of envy, we're living in a time of entitlement, we're living in a time of great expectations, but we are not living in a time of great gratitude for what God has done for us. So this month, as we did last year, I'm going to be sending out one verse a day. It'll be on our Facebook page, you'll get it by email. And what I would like you to do for me is this. I'd like you to meditate on that verse. I want you to turn that verse into a prayer to God. I want you to speak those verses out courageously and with conviction because you want to honor, and I want you to honor, and I want to be able to honor the God who deserves our worship. So this morning, convictions, courageousness, gratitude. 
Let that be an, a, um, a foundation of this church, a foundation of our ministry. Let's pray. So, Lord, I pray today that you would do work in our lives and through our lives. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of men and women who were willing to die for their faith so that we can get the faith in writing. Writers of scripture that died horrifically to give us scripture. Those that were willing to die to get it translated into our language. Father, so many of us are so fearful. So many of us are so insecure. In this day, help us to be people who are courageous. Help us to be people who are convicted. Help us to be people who are grateful to you for what your son had done for us. He lived a life we could never live. He died a death in our place. Help us to be thankful for that. Lord, I pray for Diana Kelly. I pray for um, her health, Lord. I pray for her her strength. I pray for her family. Pray for Victor, Father. I pray that you would be comforting them during this time. Pray that you put your arms around them and strengthen them. Help them to know how much you love them and how near you are to them. Lord, I, I pray for the community blend, which we heard about last week. Lord, as they have their meeting in a couple of weeks to kick it off, Lord. I pray that it would be an incredible ministry, not only for our church, but also for our community. I pray for Jewel, Father. I pray that you would help her and her, and Craig as they lead this ministry. Help them do a blessing. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this service this morning. Help us to hear your word. Help us to sing your word. Help us to glory in your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. this morning. Let's see, we won't fear the battle. We won't fear the battle. We won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us. You will lead the way. We have found a refuge only you can say. Sing with joy now. Our God is for stumble even when I fall. Neither height nor depth can separate us. Neither height nor 
death can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. He who gave his son to free us holds me in his love. Neither height nor death can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. He who gave his son Love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Christ the sure, Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hope are few, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ the shore, Christ the shore and steady anchor, when the tempest rages on. When temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be
Christ the shore. Christ the shore and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, but oh my soul now, lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever. Christ the shore and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross the great horizon, clouds behind and life secure. Christ the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. There is strength. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with the love that casts out fear. And you are working. You are working in our waiting. 
You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust your plans. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over. Yes, Lord. And you are wisdom. You are wisdom unimagined. Who could understand your ways? Raining high. Raining high above the heavens. But he reaches down. Reaching down in endless grace. You lift us up, Lord. You're the lifter of the lonely. You're compassionate and kind. And you surround and you uphold me. You surround and you uphold me. And your promises. And your promises are my delight. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Your plans, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever and perfect in love. You are sovereign over And even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working 
Yes, Lord, this morning, please hear your church as we sing that you are sovereign over us, God. We believe that even when things are going wrong, even what the enemy means for evil, even when we're in the valley, even when things are not how we would like them to be, we're not where we want to be. Things in our life, circumstances are not where we would like them to be. We didn't ask for this is what we think to ourselves. I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? You are sovereign over us, God. We know that's true. And we thank you, Lord, that we can even say such audacious things like that. Like, this isn't the life I plan. God, why would you do this to me? That you even have grace for that is amazing, Lord. Thank you that you give us grace and mercy, Lord, your creation, your children. God, when we are in the valley, you lift us up. You're compassionate, you're kind. And ultimately, Lord, we can look to you as our hope, God. We can say like we did in our, the second song we sang this morning. We can say, why am I lost? Why am I confused? Why am I, was my soul downcast? Lift your eyes to Calvary. Look to the cross. Hopeless somehow? How am I hopeless in light of the cross? He's done everything for me. Jesus has taken my sins upon him and has died so I can go free. I don't need to be hopeless. Of course, we feel that still, Lord. We live in this world that's not perfect. But you are making it perfect you're making us perfect, Lord. We thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you this morning. We can sing these things. And now as we hear your word, God, would you please impart it into our hearts, Lord. Help us not just to hear it, but to go out and do it. We thank you for this time of worship, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. All right. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be uh, beginning our study in uh, the book of Ephesians. Rick and uh, Shelly, good to see you two over there. Wow. Grateful to have you guys here. Uh, Dan Slack also, just grateful. A lot of you have been praying for Dan. Uh, He can't lift his right arm real high yet, but he can move it around and is doing good. So uh, he had a shoulder replacement, so we're very grateful for that. And then I just, I want to just say something real quick. I... There's a young man here. He's all the way back in that left corner. His name is David Thomas. And uh, David was ministered to to by my in-laws when he was just a little, little boy. Uh, I remember, I think, when your siblings and you were like six, four, and two, something like that. And we met them going door-to-door sharing the gospel in Washington, New Jersey years ago. And... uh, My uh, in-laws took an interest in making sure that that family got to church. Those children got to church on a weekly basis. We'd drive an hour and a half to get here and then make sure that those boys would get to church and that uh, their sister Heather would get to church. And David, it is really good. 
uh, to look back and see here this morning. So this morning we begin a study in the book of Ephesus. Ephesus is a city uh, in the area of Asia Minor. If you think uh, west of Italy and north of Greece, you're into that area. Ephesus was a proud, influential Roman city. Uh, Typically, it was deviant, like much of Rome was at that time. It had temples, it had idols, it had a rampant sexual perversion that was present in the city. The temptations of Ephesus were large and real. The gospel of Christ came to the city of Ephesus through a man named Paul the Apostle. The establishment of that church is recorded for us in Acts chapter 18 and 19. And we learn from Acts chapter 19 that there were disturbances at the founding of this church related to tension with local temple artisans, people that made idols and made their living from that. It was quite the business in the area of Ephesus. And so when the gospel of Christ started to intrude through the work and ministry of Paul, there was a, a very robust opposition to the gospel that ended up placing people in prison and people experiencing deep levels of suffering. When Paul left Ephesus, he gave a warning to the church there concerning false teachers that would come in uh, and that they would be like savage wolves to disrupt and to gain prominence in the church in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to the city of Ephesus and his ministry there, and he talks about fighting with wild beasts. That's obviously a metaphor for the sizable opposition that this church lived within. Okay, so the setting of this church is a very difficult setting. The tone of Paul's letter is that it comes from a beloved apostle. Verse 1 tells us, by the will of God. If you know Paul's story, you know that there was no chance apart from God of the apostle Paul becoming a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as he writes, he reminds them that he is an apostle of God, one sent by God according to God's will and plan. In this context, he is writing from prison. He speaks as an aging father to inspire his family, the struggling church, from afar. As you read through the letter, you're going to find that there are no major issues in this church, meaning There are no glaring sins that are present. This church needs encouragement because they live on the front lines of the battleground of the advancement of God's church. And Paul writes to them, this struggling church, and you'll notice when you get to chapter 6, he calls them to armor up for battle. They needed, in this context, strength and encouragement to be the people that God had called them to be in this difficult city. So Paul says to them in Ephesians 6, as he closes, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand. So that you can stand in the midst of the contest for the glory and honor of the gospel of Christ. The Christian caught in spiritual struggle, you and I, need to know. And we need to remember that on the cross, Jesus Christ won a decisive victory in which we partake of by virtue of being in him. As you read through the first 14 verses of this chapter, you're going to find that on 11 or 12 occasions, there is reference to the believers being located in relationship to 
or in the sphere of Jesus Christ. We, where we live, are often caught in struggle, needing hope. Paul reminds them and Paul reminds us that all of the struggles that we're going through, all of the difficulties, all of the raging around us at times, ultimately finds resolution in the, per- in the person of Jesus Christ and the key to standing The key to living a life that glorifies and honors God is to remember that we are, as believers, in relationship with Christ. And that produces a substantial difference. Paul knows that a superficial understanding of that relationship and of the gospel itself is damaging and will not sustain the church. But he also knows that a robust understanding of the gospel and of what it is to be in Christ is crucial support to the weary soul. And I believe it is to that end that Paul writes to to buttress, to support, to strengthen, and to encourage this beautiful church that resides in the Roman province of Ephesus. And my guess is that most of us can relate to that struggle. Most of us don't have perfect lives that are free from opposition, free from friction, free from conflict. Most of us know what it is to experience that kind of a struggle. And so as Paul begins this letter, it's it's kind of fascinating to watch how this happens. He's going to burst into a sentence from verse 3 through 14. All right, this is one sentence in the original language. It is literally a flourish, if you will, a blizzard of truth that is meant to, to hit them and put them in a place of awe and wonder and amazement as they sit and read this letter and understand how glorious it is for them to be in such a beautiful relationship with Christ. It's like the aerial view of a great metropolitan city like New York City. I have a friend that flies helicopters around New York City, takes executives around out to their homes in the Hamptons, etc. And I said to him, I said, do you ever get tired of the view of New York City at night. He said, Tim, he said, I look forward to going into work every time I get to fly around New York City at night. He says the the grandeur, the the, the complexity, the size is all inspiring to behold. And, And here's the truth. That way of seeing a city is not the only way to see a city, and it's possible that it's not the best way to see and understand a metropolitan area. It may be better, and you may get a deeper understanding, by going into the streets, by looking at maps, and and trying to grasp more fully and more detail. So it's not necessarily the best way to get the grand view, but it is one of the very helpful ways that we could learn about a city, or in this case, it is a very helpful way for us to learn in a big picture fashion of the glorious gospel of Christ. So what Paul's going to launch into is a, a, a panoramic of the gospel, of the work of God in Christ, and how it influences us, a picture that is meant to give magnitude, that aims to impress, that aims to amaze. Later in the letter, Paul's going to go into the neighborhoods, He's going to go into the streets and he's going to expose in more deep detail the glories of the gospel. But in this first chapter, written to people living in a hard town, they needed robust truth to support, encourage, 
and sustain. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. And the, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish four reasons for why God is to be praised. So this, this as he, he gives them the reason, and there is this praise and glory be to God. You're going to find that happens four times in this text. So we're going to build our discussion this morning around those explosion of praise that move Godward as his people understand the magnitude of his grace and work on their behalf. So verses 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God. That is, he is in ministry by God's design. To God's holy people in Ephesus. Some of your translations are going to say, to the saints in Ephesus. I want you to think, context of a dark, evil city and little lights that God has placed there to make his goodness known. It is to them that he writes, the faithful in Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he launches into this first reason for praise. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he initiates with praise, and then he's going to tell them why that praise should be passionate. Watch what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is an amazing statement on Paul's part. The reason for this praise is that these believers are in union with Jesus. And this idea I said before, this idea of being in him, in the sphere, in the realm of Christ's influence, power, and work is mentioned 11 times in this text. And as Paul anticipates that flourish of truths about their relationship with Jesus Christ, he launches into a statement of praise. The emphasis is that in union with Christ, they presently have every spiritual blessing, though not yet fully realized. To be united with Christ means to have the benefit of his death canceling my sin debt, of his righteousness being mine, of his resurrection power being manifested in my life. His place at the Father's right hand becomes mine and all of the resources that God designs to bring into our lives come out of and through the fact that we are in relationship with him. This is beautiful and foundational truth for every believer. In union with Christ, you have every blessing that you need now. Okay, I want you to notice that Paul puts this in the present tense. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing blessing. What does that mean? It means that you, believer, by virtue of being in relationship with Christ, by grace through faith alone, you have resources for victory, for change, for progress. There is no addiction that cannot be broken, no temptation that cannot be resisted, no habit from which I cannot be liberated. These are gifts that God gives to us in union with Christ by virtue of our relationship with him. One of the best illustrations of what it means to be united with Christ is the illustration of marriage. In marriage, people come from various 
backgrounds. I mean, many of the, the Disney movies always play off of this theme that you got this unroyal one who wants to marry a royal one. And that is, that is considered to be, uh, you know, something that is incredibly awkward and inappropriate, right? Because in ancient culture and in modern culture, we know that when a person of lesser status marries a person of high status by virtue of that union, the riches of the one who is wealthy become the riches of the one who is poor legally by virtue of marriage. Does that make sense? And when you come to Christ, you are legally bound to him. You are in him. You are in relationship with him so that the blessings of Christ become yours. And Paul aims for this truth to become a glorious, life-altering perspective. So that first verse, verse 3, is a bit of of a general reason for why God is to be praised, that we are in him and enjoying in a broad fashion benefits of that relationship that have the capacity to alter my daily life. And for that, Paul says, praise be to God. Now, the next thing he's going to do is move into three specific acts on the part of three specific individuals. This praise that now follows is Trinitarian Trinitarian in nature. It relates to the Godhead. It's going to talk about the, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. And Paul's going to give praise to God for his adopting of us. He's going to give praise for the redemption that comes through Christ. And he's going to give praise for the security and assurance that comes by the Spirit. Okay, so we're going to spend the rest of our time working through these three beautiful blessings that flow out of our relationship to being in Christ. So let's begin reading in verse 4. In verse 4 it says this. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with with his pleasure and will, and here it comes, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Now, this text moves through what many think of as heavy theological territory, mainly because we tend to resist truths and claims of God that we personally struggle with grasping. Okay? Sometimes there are theological truths that I just need to sit back and say, God, I don't fully understand, but I appreciate your work on my behalf. And as you move through this text... Paul's going to get into some of that kind of territory. So the first blessing that he's going to express following the general blessing of being in Christ is that in Christ we experience the Father's adopting love. And verse 4 tells us this. It tells us that he chose us in him, that is in Christ, in the realm of Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I want you first to notice that the choosing of God took place before creation. Okay, what that means is that God's choosing of me 
cannot be in response to something that I have already done. Okay, why? Because I don't exist before the foundation of the world. So this choosing of God is God's own free decision, not dependent upon merit, and it took place before I could act. And it's interesting that he says that this is a privilege that has with it a responsibility. He chose us to be holy and blameless. Meaning God worked on our behalf and our response should be to strive to live a holy and blameless life out of gratitude for this blessing of God's choosing. Now, the next thing he tells us is the motive and the action. Verse 5. It says, in love... He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So verse 5 says that the love of God motivated the decision beforehand of God to bring us into relationship with him. Meaning God's abundant Grace moved towards us apart from any merit, apart from any deeds, apart from any deserving favor on our part. In love, he predestined us. And verse 5 says God's goal in that, in that selection, in that, predest, in that deciding beforehand, his goal was that we would be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Now, the idea of adoption is a fascinating truth to me. I have had the privilege of being in the settings, in settings with people where that process was coming to a completion point, right? where that, that, that decision that, that, that led to a process of bringing someone into one's family illegally, at the last step of that, where that person who was now being adopted would legally become an heir in that family. They would have the legal right to security, to access, and blessings. It's an amazing thought to me. Heir to resources, an heir to affection that was otherwise out of reach. And in that adoption as sons, we receive, because the Bible says that we are in Christ as family, his status, his victory over death, his blessings all become mine. I have a new name, I have a new honor, I have a new life, I have a new hope, a new home. Because of God's adopting work. And I love how the second half of verse 5 grapples with this. It says, this was this act of choosing and predestinating us was in accordance with God's pleasure and will. Meaning this act of redeeming, of freeing, of of taking out of brokenness and bringing into God's personal family brought him great pleasure and delight. And in this context, it drives our praise when we understand that we have come into personal relationship with God. He brings us into his family in a way that is glorious and in a way that is beautiful. I want to read for you a quote related to this idea of God choosing, predestinating, and blessing with adoption as sons and daughters of God. Because sometimes we we struggle with this. 
The point of these truths is that God initiates. It means that no one comes to God apart from God's prior work in their heart. No one comes unaided. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Meaning if you've come into relationship with Christ, it's because God worked through the gospel to change your heart, to bring you to a place of repentance and faith and trust in Christ. God initiates. This truth is not intended for doctrinal debate, but in your seasons of discouragement, the message of God's love preceding our effort and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security so that we would not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. This is why God is worthy of praise. I'm sure I shared this along the way somewhere here in the past. I don't assume that God looked down from heaven and saw Tim Hoff and said, I can't imagine eternity without him. I am no price, but I am an object of God's love and affection. And I receive that love and affection from God, unmerited, undeserved, What I really deserve is separation from forever in hell. What what he gives me through his divine love, his predestination, his choice, is he gives me sonship. He brings me into his family. His infinite grace moves. Don't be so caught up in the complexity that you miss the blessing that is on the face here. And remember... That because your being in Christ is a work of God, your failure cannot destroy his love in Christ for you. You know, we often think, we, we tend to slip into religious thinking, right? That I have my standing with God as a result of my effort and my goodness. The gospel says to that, rubbish. You're standing with God. The love of God that has come on you is owing to the fact that God is love. Not because you're such a prize. Not because you're deserving. And that gives me hope that when I walk through a season of failure, my failure cannot destroy the love and design and plan of God. For that reason, the Apostle Paul says, praise be to God. Praise be to God for his glorious grace that he has given to us in the one he loves. That is in Jesus Christ. So we see the manifestation of God adopting. Secondly, we see this thought of the son redeeming. Verse 7. So it says in him, and clearly in this text, the in him is to be in Christ. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. What is redemption? What is redemption? Redemption is The payment of a freedom price to liberate someone who is in bondage. It was often used in the context of slave trading. 
All right, if someone was in slavery and you wanted to set them free, if you wanted to buy their freedom, you would pay a redemption price. Their bill was stamped redeemed. And as a result of that payment price, they would go free. All right, and this is really one of the most beautiful pictures of what Christ accomplished for you on Calvary's cross. He shed his blood so that you and I could be redeemed, so that we could be forgiven. First Peter 2 verse 24 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. My being bought out of slavery in sin and into freedom in Christ is owing only to the work of Christ. Here's the cool thing. God doesn't say, I do my part, and then you add your part. No, God pays the price fully in his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly comes. Mark 10, 45 says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a freedom price, a ransom for many. So the work of Jesus, the purpose for his coming is so that you and I could experience redemption. That is to be bought out of darkness, to be bought out of slavery by a freedom price paid by someone else so that I stand forgiven and free from my sin and bound up in the blessings of what it means to be in Christ. And Paul also says in the second half of verse 7, he says, redemption through his blood, which he equates to the forgiveness of sin. So the result of the redeeming blood of Christ is that I stand forgiven. I am guilty, but the consequence of my sin has been removed because the cost and consequence of it was laid on Jesus Christ. My debt was released by the payment of another. I want you to think with me in terms of a, of a, of a, of a parking ticket. Okay, for, to use something simple. Okay, if I'm in debt, I, I owe, I'm captive to a parking ticket. How do I get free from that ticket? From the responsibility, from the burden of it, from the fear of getting pulled over and someone, some policeman looking me up on the laptop and finding out that I owe that. How do I get out of that fear, out of that sense of guilt, that sense of debt? Well, simply I go pay the bill. And when I pay the bill, that bill no longer has claim on me. It can no longer negatively impact my emotional thinking. Why? Because to be forgiven means to be released, to be untethered, to be set free. Folks, this is one of the most beautiful truths that is accomplished through the redeeming work of Christ. That I can be forgiven. I can be freed from the burden of performance. When I'm talking with someone who has uh, come out of Catholicism, I'll, I, I'll often say to them, why don't you ask me why I'm not a Catholic? Okay? Like, ask me why I'm not. And, and here's what I, my response is always the same. Because the Baltimore Catechism says which is the main catechism for the Catholic Church in America, it says that through the sacraments, that is through the religious observances in the Catholic Church, of which there are seven, I add to the merit of Christ. Meaning, I am completing in my actions 
something that Christ started. Okay? That concept of my adding to the merit of Christ is obliterated in this text and many others. This text tells me that I am redeemed through his blood. It doesn't say I am partially freed. It says I am utterly redeemed from the brokenness of my sinfulness and free to love God and to serve others. It has no claim on me. Listen, if if you can think back in your life of things that you wish you had never done, and, and you let yourself live under the burden of that, the, the guilt of that, the shame of that. You need to know that the blood of Christ was shed so that you could be redeemed from that slavery by virtue of being forgiven all of your sins. That's how glorious the grace of God is. And that's why Paul, when he comes into this particular text, he explodes with this idea of giving Praise to God for the glorious work that we find in this lavish love of God that comes over us. Verse 8 says that we are redeemed and forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, when he says in accordance with the riches of God's grace, I want you to think in this way. If I tell you that I met Bill Gates over in New York City, and Bill Gates gave me $20. Okay, I was, I, if you know me well enough, you know, I, I have this tendency to go out to eat with people. I actually have a tendency to invite people out to eat and forget my wallet, okay, which is highly embarrassing, okay? And what I experience is I experience a level of, first I feel shame because they don't know that I don't have my wallet, and I just ordered my favorite breakfast, which now at the diner is like 12 bucks. Okay, and what I'm starting to feel is a responsibility for that debt equal to an inability to do anything about it. And I have to say to that person, you know what, can you buy me breakfast? (laughs) I mean, one time I seriously, I went to the Hunan Walk Chinese restaurant and I finished lunch, and I realized it in my wallet. I was frozen. I was captive. And it didn't mean that. I was captive in my shame. How, I, how do I tell people that can't understand me? <laughs> my problem. Because that's going to require words I've never used with them. And so here's what I did. I called a friend. I said, hey, <laughs> you want to join me for lunch today? I'm at the Hunan Walk. Yeah, I'll come over. He gets there, I've already eaten. He gets his food, he eats, he's like. I said, so here's why I ask you to come. (laughs) I said, I'm in debt and I have no means by which I can pay the debt. He goes, you like played me like a violin. I said, I know, you're easy. You're easy. He went up and paid the debt. Guess what I did? I didn't sit in that chair feeling guilty anymore. I didn't feel like I was in debt anymore. My debt had been paid, and I walked out of that door because of what someone else did. I walked out free. Folks, that's the gospel. I don't add to the merit of Christ. I receive his payment as a rich blessing that comes in him along with everything else. 
And my life and my destiny is changed. The Son redeeming by a God, verse 8, that says He lavished this grace, this rich grace, He lavished it on us. So going back for Laura Raider's sake to my Bill Gates analogy. If I meet Bill Gates in New York City and Bill Gates gives me $20, he's giving me out of his wealth, not according to his wealth. Okay? This text tells me that God gives me, he lavishes, he floods my life with grace in accordance with the riches of his glory. Think about that. He doesn't give you exactly what you need. He overwhelms you. So that in the midst of the struggles in Ephesus, they have confidence that the one who redeemed them will never let them slip back into slavery. He lavished and in love, he brought them into his family. In lavish grace, he redeems and forgives completely and utterly so that they have nothing that can cause guilt anymore. Unless they forget his grace. You ever thought, how does Paul live with himself? How does somebody who persecuted the church, this man that writes this letter, how does he look himself in the mirror? Knowing what he was responsible for. Knowing there were people whose lives he had taken because of how deep his hatred was for the church of Christ prior to coming to know Christ. How does he live with himself? He doesn't live with himself because he finally came to his senses and made a good decision to trust Christ. That's not how it happened. It happened because God, on the road of his rebellion, showed him the face of Christ, showed him that there was hope for him, and changed his life. And I guarantee you something. I guarantee you everywhere Paul went, he was explaining to the churches that knew his horrific reputation. He explained to them how God had arrested him. He didn't go into the churches and say, you know what, I finally understood. I became smart enough, I got clarity, and I finally yielded to Christ. It's not what Paul can say. All Paul can say is, I was on a road of rebellion, and God allowed the Son of Glory to confront me with the glories of His grace, and it crushed me, and it changed me. I hope you've experienced that kind of grace. That allows you to get up in the morning and live with yourself. Because God loves you. He adopted you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. So that you could be free. Paul's new outlook is framed for us in verses 9 through 12. And I... I, I'm just going to read through these. Paul had a new outlook, a a redeemed hope that was bound up in the person of Christ. And I'm just going to read through these and then I'm going to get on to the the last point. Verse 9. He made known, he God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he planned or purposed in Christ. To be put into effect 
when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, in whom also we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, his desire, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now, all I'm going to say here is that Paul has a new outlook based on his encounter with Christ. He has a new outlook. He has a redeemed hope. He learned that in Christ, decisive rescue from what I deserve is found in union with Christ, whom he had persecuted, and my future is secure. Secondly, he learned that in him, our Savior, one day, that Savior will rule and restore all things. And I'm just, I'm summarizing these verses. These verses talk about a consummation of all things. It talks about the end. When God makes right everything that is wrong. When God restores and gathers and, 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 and brings together his original design and purpose for the world. And that is in it, there would dwell righteousness and peace. This is what Jesus prays for, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love how Paul picks it up in this text. He says in verse 10 that God is going to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. And when you go into the book of Revelation, which is the book about the great consummation, What you find is when the glorious risen Christ appears that Paul met on the road to Damascus who was responsible for his forgiveness and redemption and cleansing. That Savior, when he comes, he will come with such power and glory that by God's design, Jesus will come to restore a broken and difficult world and the whole created realm as a result will serve his purposes. His coming so great One whose appearing is so powerful and irresistible that it will right all wrongs and all of the brokenness that we see and endure and live with will be restored. The outcome, Paul says, is inevitable. And his hope is that one day, the one who came to redeem us and forgive us and to bring us into his family will come to make all things new. And Paul's reflecting briefly here on what Revelation 20 to 21 talks about as he sees the glorious work of Christ and as he encourages these people to give praise to God for redemption and forgiveness, for freedom that they enjoy. His mind drifts off into this beautiful understanding of the full outcome of the work of Christ. Here's what I want to say to you, church, this morning. Hold to that promise when you were in seasons of struggle. So what's Paul saying to the church in Ephesus? When you're fearful, when you're overcome, when you're overwhelmed, when you feel guilt, when you feel shame, or you feel intimidated and you've been silenced, get a hold of this hope that the glorious Son of God one day will make everything new and that truth will give comfort and confidence to the people of God. In the struggles of life, we all lose our grip on this critical truth. 
we allow the future promises that God has given us in Christ to slip out of view, to get behind the shadows of our struggles. And when we, when we lose our future hope that comes to us in Christ by virtue of his redemption, forgiveness, and adoption, when we lose that, we begin to struggle in ways that are unimaginable. We feel overwhelmed by the struggles, by their persistency, by their strength. John Newton said this, the writer of Amazing Grace. He said, a clear grasp of the future promises makes good times leavable and bad times bearable. A good grasp of everything that is coming your way in Christ will make good times believable and bad times bearable. Folks, that's a hope I need to cling to and I need to preach to myself and rehearse to myself. Paul says it in Romans 8.18. He says, I consider in light of the consummation the culmination of God's work in Christ, I consider that our present sufferings are unworthy of comparison to the glory that will be revealed, not by Christ, but Paul says, in us. The struggles of this present time are not worthy of comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us because of our union with Christ. Do you see? That our glory and our hope is bound up in the fact that we are united with Christ and in him right now we have every spiritual blessing for life and godliness, everything we need. And in the midst of this struggle, we need to keep our own the future plan of God through the person of Christ. The last thought is this, the spirit assuring 11 through 14, or 13 and 14, I'm sorry. Paul says, and you also, and I'm going to give you one hint here that is going to come out in the rest of the book. Okay, one of Paul's passions as he writes the book of Ephesians is that the church would understand that God has called all people to unity in Christ. The church is not made up in Paul's thinking of male and female, of Jew and Greek. Those constructs in the context of our oneness in Christ are obliterated. And so in verse 11, he says, in him, we also were chosen. We, in that context, Paul speaks of himself. We who were the first to believe in Christ. That's the Jews. In verse 13, he says, and you also, that is Gentile. So beside 11, you want to write, uh, in him, we is Jews, and you also, in verse 13, is Gentiles. You also, and here's the issue. In the early church, Jewish believers tended to rest at some level in pedigree. They thought that they were more blessed by God because they were first to hope in God. And they translated that into being more blessed than the Gentiles. Paul only sees it in terms of chronology, not blessing. 
We came to Christ first. We were in Jerusalem when the gospel was preached. And we heard the good news of Christ. And we came to Christ. And then Paul says, and later, you also were included in Christ. There is no differentiation in the terms for Paul. Everyone in Christ has all of these blessings available to them for comfort and hope in seasons of struggle. Verse 13, then, and you also were included in Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So here's the question. How do we make personal, how do we appropriate these massive blessings that are present in Christ? How do they become ours? Verse 13, Paul says this. He, He actually lays out how the believers in Ephesus came to a place of faith in Christ. He says, you were included in Christ. Take, take that back to verses 1 to 3. In him you have all spiritual blessings, all of the capacities to live a life for the glory of God. You were included in Christ when? Watch what he says. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit. So here's what the text says. It says, they heard the gospel of God and they responded to it with repentance and faith. And as a result, they believed. Okay, so they're coming to faith in Christ. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the the predestination work of God And the choosing work of God does not put aside the necessity of our human response. Okay? I want you to get that. The fact that God is working in and aiding in my coming to faith in him does not negate the fact that I needed to believe in the gospel of God. Okay? So there's this mystery at work where God is predestining and choosing and where we are hearing and believing. And those things somehow in the knowledge of God work together for our good. And they keep us profoundly humble because we realize that no one comes to God unaided, unassisted, unregenerated by the power of God. No one comes unless God works. So if you're in Christ, I hope that you are deeply humble. And I hope that you are deeply confessional in your walk with him. Now, the one thing that is interesting here is that Paul said, you, when you, heard the, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation. What is gospel? Just want to help you with this. The gospel we think of as the good news of God in Jesus Christ, right? But the word gospel literally means a proclamation. It's a, it's a, it's a, a declaration. A town hall will go out and give a gospel. It was the proclamation of good news. It's not a set of rules that we are to follow. It is a declaration that freedom is found in Christ. That's the gospel, Our tendency is always to slip back into thinking that the gospel is things that I do when actually the gospel is an announcement about what God the Father has done through His Son and by His Spirit. 
Okay, and I hope that helps you when you understand that sharing your faith in Christ is not about telling people how to live. It's not about giving them rules. It's about making a proclamation to them that in spite of how dark your past is, how broken it is, how full of shame you are in Christ, there is hope for freedom and forgiveness. He pays the price on Calvary's cross by his blood so that you can be forgiven and set free. It's interesting to me the next thing that he says, when you believed, verse 14, or the end of verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. That is the promised Holy Spirit. You go back to the Gospel of John. You can go back to the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And you find these Old Testament promises of God's indwelling presence amongst his people. And that indwelling presence of God here is called being marked with the seal. The idea of a seal simply is this. It's cattle branding. All right, that, that mark declares ownership. And then he is a deposit guaranteeing is the Holy Spirit is the first taste of what God has for you. The Holy Spirit, if you have trusted Christ, Paul says here, you were marked in him when you believed. He is a seal. He comes at the time of conversion. That first taste of him is a little bit of what lies in your future. It's a little bit. It's a down payment. And the idea of down payment is this. If I have, by the Spirit, received the blessings and assurance of salvation, Paul says, okay, here's what I want you to know. That's just a deposit. So Dave Rader has a truck. He says, Tim, uh, I'll sell you the truck for 500 bucks. And I say, okay, Dave, I'll give you a $50 deposit. That deposit aims to guarantee that I will complete the purchase. That what he has received in part, I will bring in full. Okay? So the the presence of God by his spirit is glorious and powerful and life-transforming and beautiful. But it is only, he is only a taste, a foretaste. A deposit guaranteeing that what is coming to you in the future, wrought by the work of Christ in 9 through 12, will blow your mind. And I think Paul says that to the church in Ephesus, so that in the midst of their great struggle, they won't lose hearts. Because they know that they belong to God. That he has, by the Spirit, marked them, sealed them, put his name on them. All of that is lavish grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor from God. He assures, the Spirit assures, that what you face is not without purpose. And that what you cherish most is not in jeopardy. Jesus Christ. And the Spirit, the Bible tells us, He affirms He assures, he cries out, Abba, Father. That is, he reminds you of your relationship to the Father and affirms your relationship with the Son. And this Trinitarian work all explodes with praise and glory to God. Do you know spiritual blessings in him? Perhaps you're here this morning 
and you've heard the proclamation. Forgiveness is free in Christ. Freedom from shame, from guilt, from the bondage of sin is found in Christ. My question for you this morning is, have you believed? Have you believed that he hung on Calvary's cross to bear the consequence of your sin? Have you believed that when you repent and trust in him, he will change your destiny forever? And he will give you every spiritual blessing in Christ for your profound and deep encouragement. He will legally give you that in his son. Why would you live any other way? Why would you resist that message, that hope, that assurance? I can't think of a reason. This Paul writes to a church struggling. It's an old chorus I remember hearing as a kid. It says, sometimes the days seem long. Our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear irresistibly to catch his bride away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. That song goes on in the chorus to say, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse, Paul, of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Do it by remembering that 12 times you are in him, and in him you have every spiritual blessing. You are redeemed. You are adopted. And you are marked as God's possession. By the work of the Spirit. God, take this truth. Praise-inducing truth deep in our hearts. Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning who for the first time is hearing the proclamation, not rules, not things they must do, but the proclamation that in Christ there is forgiveness and there is hope. I pray, God, that today you would give them the gift of believing and trusting and repenting and knowing Christ. God, help them to know that when in the moment they believe that a heavenly transaction occurs and their future in Christ is secure. And pray for these blessings. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul, it is 
Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. And is nailed to the cross, and I bear. Lord, we praise this morning, God. We thank you for saving us, redeeming us, making a way when there simply was no way. God, may we revel in and have joy in our salvation this this week, God, as we leave this place, God. And Lord, help us to be mouthpieces to our community and to the world. The gospel has to be spread, and we're the ones that are sent to do it. God, thank you for encouraging and uplifting us this morning through worship and the word. Now be with us as we go from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.